Okay, I'm here with um, Kevin McKernan, who is CSO of Medicinal Genomics. Um, we spoke several weeks ago, actually, I think it was back in early March, um, talked a lot about the state of peer review research and sort of the problems with that. Um, welcome back. Thank you for having me again, Brittany. I appreciate the, uh, the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Um, I'd love to ask you about uh, what's happened in the time in the in the weeks since we talked about sort of the state of peer review and research and how the way things are kind of slows things down and it's also not transparent and there are all these issues. Have you seen anything change in the weeks with with COVID nineteen going on and people eager for information quickly? What changes have you seen? Well, there, there's certainly an urgency which is speeding things up, which can be both good and bad. Um, we've seen a lot of work at, at, at BioArchive and MedArchive. This is where most of the um, COVID papers are publishing. These are preprint publish, um, publishing websites. Um, they don't have peer review, but they do have comment sections. And so what you'll see is any paper that's controversial will get just filled up with, uh, with commentary on it. And so, in fact, we're, we are seeing some peer review that's not through the traditional system, that's, that's being done um, real time. Uh, at the same time, we're also seeing some non-peer reviewed things get escalated into policy, uh, which is a bit frightening. We've got um, a couple of these models that, that came out, and I, Grant, I know the researchers are working under tight timelines and doing the best they can with the data they have, but, um, some of the stuff, for instance, the Neil Ferguson models have come out, uh, which were implicating maybe two million deaths in America. And there was um, I even think some of those models had social distancing baked into them and they were still um, projecting many, many, many more deaths. Um, those were never really peer reviewed. They they seem to have created lockdowns before really people have even been able to see the code. I don't even think the code is public yet on those. That was last I heard. Um, Microsoft was going to help them like polish or clean up the code uh, to make it publication publication grade. Now, I don't think that's uh, I could be wrong. Maybe it's out in the last few days, but it doesn't really matter. It wasn't public before the lockdowns happened. Um, and I think everyone's a little bit upset about that, that we've got massive um, uh, you know, political turmoil right now going on without there being a whole lot of scrutiny on on if those models are right and if they're really worthy of acting on. So yeah. that's kind of the downside of of, uh, of of rushing these things without any peer review. Right. And what about what about the upside? What the these sites that you mentioned, um, do you feel like they're producing results as good as or maybe better than the traditional peer review system? Well, they're certainly getting a lot more public scrutiny. I mean, at least the peer review process is transparent. So if you go to BioArchive, you can look at all the comments on these papers, and everyone can read them, and everyone knows who they're coming from. That's that's a good mm -hmm. mm -hmm. arena that when people put their name on, on something, they um, they they're a little more careful uh, on on what they uh, put their reputation behind. When you're anonymous, you can throw you can throw down all types of um, crazy theories as to why the paper's wrong and run away and no one will mm. ever know. Yeah. So that that's a good side of it. I do think we're seeing a, a lot more, many more eyeballs on any given research. Like when it goes through peer review, you just get three anonymous reviewers. You could find a hundred comments on some of these papers uh, that are in bioarchive. So you're getting the wisdom of the masses there to weigh in, which is really important because in, in the peer review process, they the journals will select a few people um, but that's always a statistical subsampling of brains, and it may sometimes be the wrong ones uh, who may not be as adept in the field as, as you think. Many of the people who 
um, probably have the most skin in the game, may not have the time to review the paper. So, um, you know, I think we're seeing a very different flavor here with COVID. Um, and that, that might be because there's urgency and everyone has, as we mentioned in the last cast, everyone has feels a little bit more vested interest in this. Uh, what happens when that vested interest goes away? Well, you know, we, we, we might need something else to replace those incentives. Uh, mm-hmm. So that, that's uh, I, I don't know that what we see right now is going to sustain itself once COVID disappears. Um, mm-hmm. I know, but I suspect we're going to need to put other incentives in place to to keep pace. So it's interesting to see that happening sort of in the science space, while in the social media space, there's this urge to sort of tighten control on what information gets out there and who has, you know, who has the credentials to have an opinion on COVID-19. I mean, YouTube just came out and said, we're going to delete videos that don't reflect the WHO's view on COVID-19. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, meanwhile, you know, back in January... The who. I mean, the who keeps contradicting themselves. Right, I mean, they were, back in January, they were saying that it, there was there was no evidence for human-to-human transmission. Um, so, so that's kind of interesting that you've got these two you know, how do you think the sensors are gonna are gonna hold up to the fact that there's this really vibrant community of of um, you know anyone being able to comment on these papers? Um, you know, are, are they is someone gonna gonna come in and say, oh, we've got to censor that too? We've got to crack down on that. Uh, they may, they may eventually get to that and start saying, all right, who's a qualified reviewer and start you know blue starring particular people who can and can't speak up about certain papers. I mean. Um, there's certainly a disgusting bias uh, amongst many of the scientists out there I see who are dragging their politics into this. Uh, you'll, you'll see a, uh, a backlash of scientists against hydroxychloroquine just because mm-hmm. Trump uttered its words. And, you know, he didn't invent the drug. He just is a bad <laughs> spokesperson for it. But they are bashing the hell out of a drug that looks like it's saving lives, mainly because um, they they have something against Trump. Uh, and, uh, and of course he's probably botched the description of all of these other disinfectants he's been talking about. I, I have no doubt that he has been given information about, there are some promising therapies about using uh, UVC and, and some other types of, uh, inhaled antivirals that he was probably briefed on and doesn't know how the hell to translate that into, into a mm-hmm. public and fumbles the hell out of it. Um, but, uh, those poor companies who are building those, those tools now feel like they're in the hydroxychloroquine bucket. Uh, so, uh, and then you see Fauci come out today talking about, um, these, you know, the beautiful results with Gilead's remdesivir. Well, that that study is no more controlled than what we've seen from HCQ, Mm. but it's getting green lighted and, and the, the the Trump pills are, are banished. Uh, I think there was another set of physicians today that um, was it AASP or something or uh, AAPS. There's another physician group, a little bit more libertarian oriented, I gather, from just the tone of the reading um, that's pushing for earlier access to hydroxychloroquine. It's only an inpatient um, off-label. Right. You can't use right. it at your house. Your, 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 your home physician can't, can't order this for you. And they're pushing to change that because they think you should, the data is now in that demonstrates if you wait too long to use this, it doesn't work or it doesn't work as well. Right, you need to use it early on. Was that the is that the Academy of uh, American Academy of Physicians and Surgeons? Maybe That's the, it, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They are they're very good on they're very sort of pro health freedom, which is amazing for a for a um, 
a physician's group. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oftentimes you, you, you do see some licensure protectionism where only doctors can speak on this. And, yeah. uh, and I think uh, this is a good time for America to really review that because mm-hmm. um, this we don't really have freedom of speech if you can't if only doctors can talk about health. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's that's the tone you have right now on the Internet is you're not a physician. Your opinion doesn't matter unless uh, you're Bill Gates. Unless you're Bill Gates, in which case your opinion very much matters because you're stuffing all of our pockets with lots of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, think, I think I saw he's funding the Who, he's funding oh, yeah. he's, he's the, London, he's funding Seattle. I mean, he's got money. He's a money machine. Yeah, yeah so, I think he's the, the second biggest funder of the Who, um, if if that's correct. I mean, I, yeah, 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 yeah. I think after Trump pulled out, he might be the lead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, crazy. Okay, well, I so I'd also I'd like to talk a little bit about you posted this video back on April 10th talking about the ancestry of COVID-19. Um and it's now April 29th. Could you just go over just briefly what what did you what are you seeing when you look at um the genetics of COVID-19 and how it's mutating? What are your thoughts there? So, yeah, that I posted that because I kept getting a lot of folks asking me and pointing to like the bat, the images of bats in Wuhan and how this leapt out of those bats into humans. And that's a story that kind of goes through the media. Um, and it's not, that's really not an accurate portrayal of what happened. So I tried to clarify that. And um, I was accused online of, of building a straw man that no one thinks that, but um, let me, let me explain the, the very person who accused me of this actually made the same mistake. So uh, it's happening. People think this thing leapt out of bats in December. And that's just not the evidence we have. Uh, the evidence we have uh, is, again, it's in a preprint, but they, they've done molecular clock studies where they look at the number of mutations the virus is collecting over a certain period of time, and then you can get a sense of its mutation rate. Then you can anticipate how long would have it taken for you to get from here or, or you know, to, to here from its most recent known ancestor. A known ancestor is an important thing to underscore in that statement. And it's like 40 to 70 years ago, is where they think it diverged from this bat virus known as rat G13. 40 now, to 70 years ago. 40 to 70 years ago, yes. Wow. So okay. that's a huge gap for a missing link to exist. And the media seems to have everyone convinced that this came out of Wuhan. Uh, and I, I, I very much doubt the first patient we sequenced was the person who ate that bat or mm-hmm. or was the first person to ever get this. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that there's people who have probably received some version of this prior to us having to capture the sequence, and it might be different. And that ancestor might, might be really important for us to know and understand, um, to understand the sort of the antibodies that might be in the population and whether the spread is uh, happened earlier than we think. Mm-hmm. Um, so back, back then, we didn't have any of the antibody data that we have now. I just kind of proposed this as, look, if you look at the mutation rate of the current coronavirus that's going through humans, it's mutating at a known rate. And the leap it's, it, it, the leap from, from the human one that we have to rat G13 is about one in every 25 or one in every, uh, every 33 letters is different between the one that they saw in Wuhan and, and the bat. And as I mentioned, it's 40 to 70 years ago. So we don't know how long it's been in bat or how long it's been over in human. It could have been over in human for those 40 to 70 years, mm-hmm. in which case the, our, 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 some, of our, some portion of our population might have some antibodies to it. Um, we've also seen since then, the one that's in human seems to be going to cats, to ferrets, to tigers, to minks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this thing seems pretty promiscuous amongst mammals. Mm-hmm. 
And I somewhat doubt that that promiscuity magically appeared in December. Uh, that we happened, the first one we happened to sequence also happened to be the one that could leap between bats to right. human and everything else, that this thing's probably been bouncing around a couple mammals for a while. Right. Um, you'd have to believe, you know, you won the lottery if the first thing you sequenced happened to be the zoonotic event. Um, and so that's what I was trying to clear up, and, and some people were claiming no one thinks that, but I don't know. Judge for yourself, I see a lot of stuff in the news where um, there's, you know, people condemning these wet markets as if this thing left out of the wet market in December. And um, something certainly, I don't, I'm not condoning wet markets, but I, I think we have to, con we, we do have to draw scrutiny to the ancestry here because the whole medical system is scared because they're using the term novel. Never mm -hmm. or which means it's going to race through the population uh, because there's an immuno-naive population. Um, but that's probably not the case. That, that What's probably the case is that we've seen some version of this before. We may have some antibodies for it. Um, so the antibody studies I did not have, and I said, let's just wait to see what the antibody studies come back. Now, the antibody studies are all coming back pretty high. Mm -hmm. uh, and now they're in the, the stage of attacking the antibody test, saying they're, they're too dirty and we can't believe the data. We have to stick with the models because the models have absolutely no data behind them. Um, so we should blindly follow models, even though we have data actually <laughs> compromised that, that speaks against the models. Um, so that was, uh, I think the antibodies coming back showing it's either spreading faster out of Wuhan than we anticipated, or the population has some, uh, some, some history or some memory of either this or a relative. And I think the relative is the important point to think about because, um, these are coronaviruses. Um, as you know, they're common cold viruses. Uh, there's a couple other ones that have gone through the population that seem to be more distant than the rat one that they're talking about. So you've heard of MERS and SARS. MERS came out of camels and SARS was an earlier version of this, um, which had a far higher fatality rate, but didn't spread very far. And that's an important thing to remember because when they're, when, they're, when they're more lethal, they, they usually don't spread as far. Mm -hmm. um, those are more distant than this rat um, ancestor. I think those are like 85% identical. So this thing is um, not necessarily, it's not as nearly related to the older MERS or SARS that we've seen as it is this uh, bat, this bat um, virus. And then there are like four other cold viruses, coronaviruses that have been studied heavily, 229E, HKU1, NL63, OC43. Uh, these are previous cold viruses, and they share some of the S proteins that we have in the current coronavirus. And there's already some studies with, uh, off the point, you do a paper uh, from Braun et al., uh, B-R-A-U-N, I believe it is. Um, it's a preprint as well in MedArchive. It has some interesting comments in its review as well. But they were measuring, in, in by grabbing blood samples that predate the December introduction of this, they were, mm -hmm. they, some, um, they were testing for, do, do any of those patients have antibodies that are similar to antibodies uh, in in COVID and in the current, I should say, you know, SARS-CoV-2. And they found some found some overlap that, in fact, their prior cold viruses might confer some level of immunity to this virus. Now, it was a small study of like 18 patients, and this is a you know this is a, an interesting finding. It's not necessarily conclusive that you have immunity or any particular person has immunity. It just yeah. it just goes to show it's another piece in the puzzle that. Um, the, when we call this new, that it's novel from an RNA perspective, that should never be used in the media uh, to infer panic. 
All right. It does not right, mean right. it's new from an immunopeptide standpoint or from an, the way that our immune systems may see this thing. They may have seen a piece mm -hmm. of this thing before and have built some resistance to it. And I think that might explain why we have these high asymptomatic rates. We've got a lot mm -hmm. of this virus, they're PCR positive and they don't have symptoms. So just to get back to the, the term novel, what is it then? Why are they calling it that? What What is it that makes this novel distinguishes it from other coronaviruses that that for why are they using that term? So I, I, I don't think it's um, being done out of deceit. I think it's it's that we tend to seek we have a, we have a basically a selection bias in sequencing. We don't run around and sequence asymptomatic um, viral populations. Yeah. It's, just, it's just not done. We, when someone gets really sick and it looks like a pandemic, the sequencers come out and they come out hard. And so they sequenced this thing and they found that, hey, look, it's nowhere in the database before. And that instantly becomes uh, publication uh, meat, if you will. Uh, if it's novel like that, it gets, it gets sung from the rooftops and, hey, we found something new. It's never been seen before. But that usually means that you're the first person to find this new set of viruses, but you're probably not the last, and there's probably ones that predate it. We mm -hmm. just didn't know about it because we weren't sequencing patients that were asymptomatic. And that, that was one of the theories I threw down in, the, in that video, was that mm -hmm. if its ancestor happened to be um, less virulent than the one that's currently knocking out the comorbids, we would have never had a motivation to go and sequence it. So right. we could have easily circulated around China, and it, people wrote it off as a cold. They may have never even gone to the hospital, or maybe someone mistook it for the flu. Uh, and so it just didn't get sequenced, and so we have no evidence of it. Um, so that, that 40 to 70 year time frame, I think is important for people to know about, because that implies a whole lot of information we don't know. Um, that doesn't mean, uh, you know, the absence of evidence is an evidence of absence. This just means that um, we need to be thinking about the human immune repertoire and whether or not it has any memory of this or its ancestors. And so that's what people are starting to focus on in the antibody field is they're, they're lining all these viral sequences uh, to one another and looking at which regions that are on the epitopes. The epitopes are the, the proteins that the virus presents on the outside uh, surface of the virion. Mm -hmm. So it's what your immune system can grab a handle of and try to remember if it's ever seen this before by building antibodies against it. Uh, and some of those peptides have a lot of homology to the prior cold viruses. Mm. Uh, and there's one paper's really trying to drill in on that. They're trying to look at, okay, is it possible that we have cross-reactivity in our immune system because of its ancestry? Um, and I don't think the story's out yet. It's still kind of unfolding, but it's certainly – more data has come out in support of that April 10th video than against it uh, since it's been live. So um, just just to clarify, so it sounds like, I, I feel like when we talk about antibodies and immunity, especially immunity to a specific virus, I feel like in sort of in mainstream parlance, there's a sense that there's a, let's see, there's a COVID-19 virus and um, you need antibodies specific to that virus in order to fight it. But it sounds like what you're saying is that if it has things, parts of its epitope that are the same as things on, on similar viruses, that an antibody could go after both of those. At the same time. Is that, yeah. Is that, is yeah. that right? That's what that, that's, 
that's kind of what the paper's pushing at is okay. there may be some partial level of immunity due to the fact that there's so much homology between S1 and S2 in the, in the epitope um, region of the, of this virus. Um, and now they're, they're mostly comparing this to cold viruses that were found a long time ago and are fairly distant. The, these, the four that I mentioned, 2290E and HKU1 and NL63 and I think the other one's OC64, but uh, or OC43. Th th those four have been heavily published, but those are the ones we know about. I, I'm somewhat mm -hmm. curious about the gap between the current SARS-CoV-2 and those, um, because I suspect if you were just to take the mutation rate that they've beautifully demonstrated in next strain and imagine that into the population back past the Wuhan event where they first sequenced and just said, okay, imagine yeah. there's viruses that 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 are also differing by less than a nucleotide per strain um where were those less virulent if they yeah. were they probably spread far and fast mm -hmm. and we probably never looked at them now they are doing some retrospective work where they're going back into biobanks and now that they have better tools uh, to go and look for this stuff um we just have to be careful we're doing that with whole genome sequencing and not pcr a lot of the pcr tests that are out there are designed to be very specific for this strain of COVID. Um, and in fact, they they spend a lot of time building primers that don't hit MERS and SARS, but do hit SARS-CoV-2. Uh, COVID so those primers will amplify this virus really well, but they probably will get tripped up on 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 um, on some distant ones. And not so that means they won't they won't see them at all. They they probably they won't they they're designed not to see MERS and SARS at all because they don't uh -huh. want cross reactivity to those. Yeah. Um, it's probably unlikely that they're missing a really close ancestor, like an ancestor from September. But they're, they they could, in fact, uh, you, you can run into some problems if this thing's mutating about a you know a snip every genome uh, that a, or every every patient you you sequence. It's a little bit less than that actually, but just for simplicity of calculation, if if one base out of thirty thousand changes every time it hops from a human, um, and your PCR primers usually are resting on 50 letters of sequence being the same. And if it, the, the variants happen to fall in those regions, then you don't amplify it. So the further you go back in time, 40 to 70 years ago, the higher likelihood it is that your PCR primers aren't gonna find the deeper right. ancestors. They'll right. find the closer, perhaps. Um, so I just don't know whether we've, we've sequenced them all and whether um, it's fair to assume the novelty in the RNA sequence they're finding is going to present novelty to our immune system. Right. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it, it, it might. The other, the other flip side of this hypothesis, which is equally valid, and some people are betting more on this, is that it actually did start just then in December, and it spread much, much faster than we anticipated without any contact tracing or any testing here in the United States, and it just got out of hand and everywhere. Uh, and we only woke up to it by uh, finding a case in Seattle, but it was in maybe California and other places earlier. Um, I, I think we'll know more about that in the coming weeks as they do more IgG testing and body testing. They'll, they'll so that's, find... that, it sounds, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like that theory is more saying that it was something engineered or or they're saying that in nature something could suddenly make an evolutionary change like that. And Well, that's a good point. So that's, that's an area that um, would nullify this. So... Uh, my, my point to a lot of folks that are claiming this is novel exactly as of December is that that can't be true unless it's engineered. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. everything on Earth has ancestors, and the burden yeah. of proof you claim it doesn't have ancestors just violates all of evolution everywhere around us, yeah. unless someone engineered it, in which case they could have jumped, sped evolution a little bit here and, and done some engineering. But, um, the, you know, the engineering stuff is really hard to get to the bottom of as a remote person. I mean, a lot of that stuff 
a lot of that work is um, whether it was at USAMRED funded by Fauci or whether it was in Wuhan, all that stuff is under, you know, it's, it's, I don't believe what comes out of China right now. So I don't know that I'm actually going to be really effective at digging through what really happened from a, from a, uh, you know, engineering standpoint, the few things I've seen, I posted another video about this as well. There's a couple of videos circulating, trying to claim it was engineered. And I took a look through some of their genetics and didn't see that it really supported at the moment, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't. It just means that the evidence brought forward today, I don't feel is strong enough to make such bold claims. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the more likely thing is knowing, um, there's so much, um, coronavirus uh, diversity out there is that Mother Nature found something we just haven't seen before. I mean, some of the some of the bat guano surveys that people are doing are finding so many new coronaviruses per survey. I think they classified eight new ones in the last paper that I read, and they anticipate there's 3,200 other ones that, that are wow. you know, yet to be discovered. Wow. So when you start thinking about that level of undiscovered diversity in the coronavirus uh, uh, family, it's 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 the Occam's razor on this is it's probably natural. We just haven't seen yeah. it. Yeah. 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 So um, could we get, getting back to next strain, could you talk a little bit about who they are and what, what they're doing? This is a group in Seattle that's been um, building a website that tracks the phylogenetics of this. Uh, and all of their data points pretty sternly back to uh, the December date because they're all based on sequencing data. And um, there wasn't any sequencing data before that. So um, they see a very good and strong consensus on the um, their genome. The number of genomes I have up, there's probably more than 3,500 now, on all of those mutations um, coalescing down to one parent. Uh, there have been some concerns that they're not considering um, convergent evolution in their model, that you could have other coronaviruses out there that mutated into the same mutation structures we see in the N plus one or N plus two populations in, in, um, in their current data set. And, uh, that's, that can't be accounted for, but if, if, again, that's no fault of theirs that they don't have data. They can't draw those conclusions. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a good site for tracking the spread all over the world. And what you will see is the, the variants that are in different geographic locations now are, they're, they're not all the same virus anymore. They're subtly different. Some of the mutations are silent. We don't think they change the amino acid profile. We know they don't change the amino acid profile, but some of them are amino acid changing variants. And now they're starting to categorize them into different types, like S and L type coronaviruses. Mm -hmm. But there's really like a thousand or more different viruses circulating and they're concentrated in different geographic areas due to founder effects of the virus arriving. Uh, so that, that presents perhaps subtly different epidemiology for each of those demographics. Mm-hmm. So, um, not to open this whole whole kettle of worms here, but um, as far as as far as developing a vaccine, that's that's something a lot of people are talking about. And we already know that um, one of the big problems with the flu vaccine is that you know every year there are different mutations, and you know the the, the vaccine they they developed prior to that year isn't going to help against much of that. Is is all of this, does that represent the same problem? Does that represent the same kind of thing where if you try to develop a vaccine for what we're seeing now, it's not going to be effective a year from now? So it's a very good question. Um, so right now, the estimates are that the flu is mutating uh, three times faster than coronavirus. However, most of the, the mutation rate in, in influenza is due to the fact that it has separate pieces of, of nucleic acids in its genome that can recombine. And that means it's just a little bit better at shuffling its deck. Okay. Uh, however, that being said, there are some papers right now just starting to measure how much the COVID viruses are recombining. 
Um, this is something that's uh, that can often get missed with some of the short read sequencing that's being used right now to sequence these things. Uh, most of the sequencing going on in COVID is using a platform known as Illumina because it's fast and cheap. However, um, it's it's very good at finding point mutations and some small insertions and deletions, but it can sometimes get tripped up on uh, on recombination. Um, so that's something that uh, we are only just beginning to peel back. We, it, it may turn out that the the coronavirus has a little bit more recombination, but it doesn't have separate genetic elements like the flu. So I don't think it's ever going to be as polymorphic as the flu. Nevertheless, there's never been a, a successful cold vaccine. And uh, there could be some reasoning, you know, some reason behind that. Uh, likewise, if you look at the prior coronavirus vaccines that were attempted in animals, they seem to backfire. They seem yeah. to the yeah. immune system for an exaggerated event once the virus arrived. So I, I think... Um, one, I think that's a that's that's a bad plan uh, <laughs> to have people hold their hope out for this for a number of reasons. The first reason is that vaccines you need to apply to everyone um, or a large portion of the population. That's not economically uh, a wise plan. You should when when such a small percentage of the population gets symptomatic, you should be thinking about medicines that only treat the symptomatic, not the asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. You're performing. You're trying to perform preventative medicine on a population where there's going to be a risk in the preventative. Um, medicine, right? So all these vaccines aren't perfect, right? They have adverse events and they differ on every single vaccine. So when you take something with a small adverse event, let's say, I don't, I'm just going to pull something out of the hat. Let's say it's 0.1%, one in a thousand, maybe that's too high, but it's easy math to do in your head. You apply that, uh, you know, against a billion people and you have, you're going to have a million people that have an adverse event. event. Mm -hmm. That's more than the 50,000 dead that are that are showing up from COVID, right? So this the, the numbers game of applying a medicine that may have an ADR or an ADE, adverse event report, to the entire population means you magnify the drug exposure to 10 hundredfold more people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's just, a, that's just a bad, I think, do no harm strategy, the right approach in medicine. And this is the same thing that doctors are saying now about quarantine is you quarantine the sick, you don't quarantine everybody. Because quarantine has negative consequences, you you know vitamin D, you lose your immune system. There's there's a host of psychological issues, and so you don't want to apply that to everybody because it's first do no harm. You're doing harm by telling someone to watch out for someone else's health. You only do this to the sick. The same is probably true with using drugs. If we reposition drugs that are already through the FDA, because the FDA is a big pain in the ass right now, mm -hmm. uh, get drugs that are already through and and put them across. Um, these patients, now you're only applying the drug to the symptomatic. Yeah. And that, that's a much, much smaller slice of the population. And therefore, there's much less liability and much lower risk. So I, I think the vaccine thing is, you ought to question why is the vaccine story getting pushed? Who is mm -hmm. advising? I think it's because some of the advisors he's using are vaccine people. Uh, Fauci, mm -hmm. his whole patent estate is about vaccines. Uh, so I, I don't think, um, I think there's conflicts there. Um, there's certainly conflicts in the news about any of this funding of this research in this area, perhaps over in Wuhan. That's another area where people say, Hey, look, is he's, whether he's innocent or guilty, we don't know, but the mere fact that there's an accusation means, uh, he's, he's, he's been compromised in his capacity to perhaps be the, the spokesperson for this, uh, this equation. Yeah. Um, and, and then, yeah, there's, you you know more about that industry than I do, but there's there's a host of concerns because uh, you're you're presenting to the 
Uh, on one hand, you're telling people, well, we don't know if your IgG antibody tests really, really confer that you have resistance, but we might yeah. have a vaccine. You know, that's double speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How can and, one be true? And I don't know how the how Facebook and all these censors are going to handle that when it's okay. It's going to be the who message and the who's talking <laughs> both sides of the mouth. <laughs> that's going to get really interesting. Um, yeah, it's interesting. The whole um, it's. I just had a I had a piece about sort of the philosophy of of. Um, I read that. That was yeah. fantastic, by the way. I forwarded it to a lot of oh, people. Oh, thank you, thank you. It, it's to me, it just it really shows up right here because in both cases, both with um, you know looking at solutions to the virus and also looking at you know economically, politically, how to handle it, it's all this sort of one size fits all approach, and. Um, I just wonder if you have any thoughts about why, why, why is it that, I mean, I kind of know why I think it was, but why is it that, you know, the politicians ran with the Imperial College report and the modeling, um, even though, as you say, it wasn't peer reviewed, why is it that that won the day? Why did that approach, um, and, and again, why, why is the vaccine narrative getting so much press? Why are the one size fits all approaches getting so much attention and so much power. I, I think it's the last word you said, is that those are the approaches that expand power and the ones that that don't afford uh, expansion of power just don't get aired. Uh, I mean, the media is certainly going to sensationalize something that's doom and gloom over something that's, eh, might be two to three X the flu. Like that story just doesn't, doesn't give them the clickbait they want. And of course, in the political front, um, when there's an emergency, political careers are made, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, you get... Cuomo, you know, grandstanding every day. You got the Blasio doing his weird stuff, interviewing, you know, intervening with funerals. You've got Baker here in in, in Massachusetts, um, talking about lockdowns into June, um, and he's on the podium every single day, showing off his his articulation. Uh, so I, I think there's that there's and it's human. I, I'm not I'm not saying that that like Baker's doing this out of um, uh, out of evil or anything. I think he's just there's a vacuum. Everyone's scared. People want to become leaders. They step into that role. Next thing they know, they're on camera every day and everyone's hanging off their every word. And that might be a really hard subroutine to unwind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't, you can't, you back down from that and you're losing your own, you know, your own position suffers, your perception suffers. Suddenly everyone suffers. goes back to talking about the Patriots. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, you don't want that. You don't want that. Okay, well, I'm, um, I mean, we're going to wrap up. Um, anything else that you wanted to add or um, anything we didn't cover? Do you feel like we should, yeah, we should mention? Just, uh, all of my ramblings are usually up on, uh, on Twitter or Facebook or uh, LinkedIn. Um, check us out at uh, Medicinal Genomics. We are doing some work on testing pathogens in cannabis, which is related to this field. And we may even start looking at um, COVID on top of cannabis if it ever oh. shows up there. We don't, we don't want that to shut down our industry. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's there's some overlap with the patients that are comorbid. A lot of the comorbids in in, um, in SARS uh, or COVID are diabetes, hypertension, COPD, mm -hmm. cancer, and a few of those patient classes are using are using cannabinoids. Um, so there's and there's back guano being used as fertilizer. We have to stop that. Oh uh, right, yes, I saw something about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> that can't be good. So I, we're we're we've we've built tools. Initially built these tools to detect. COVID on so the employees could get some peace of mind and, and uh, we can't run it for anybody else because we're not a, we don't have the right paper paperwork to run this on human samples. But um, 
uh, you're free to run it on yourself and, and not report anything. There, uh, the, the, so that, so we did that, and then we realized that uh, there were some grows in certain states that have employees coming down with COVID, and so that they they're handling the plants, and there could be exposure mm. there. So we're thinking of shifting that over to work on uh, testing this for for that uh, for that pipeline to make sure nothing ends up in that in that supply chain. Right. Um, nice. But uh, uh, other than that, we're usually sequencing cannabis genomes and and building pathogen tools. So you can see some of that work at Medicinal Genomics. Okay. And uh, medicinalgenomics.com? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And you are Kevin McKernan on at Twitter or Facebook? Uh, it's just, uh, at okay. Kevin underscore McKernan at Twitter. And I think it's just Kevin McKernan on Facebook. And I think the same on LinkedIn. I think I got lucky. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I can, and I can put those up in the show, in the show notes too. So um, great to have you on again. Um, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk again soon um, as things are, things are changing. Things changing. Thank you as well. And stay safe out there. I, I, good luck in California. Let me yeah. know when you got to move out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, not, not long. I'm hoping. Yeah. Right. Okay. Thank All you. Right. See you, Brittany. Okay. Bye. bye.